Well, hello everyone. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging, and welcome to today's COVID updates for aging adults and their families, in which I'm going to provide an update on the latest Omicron variants, uh, boosters, and kind of what to know and do during um, the current, uh, we'll call it a wave. We're having an increase in cases here in the United States. Today is Thursday, May 5th. 2022 and i haven't done one of these updates i think since february but since then we've definitely had the situation evolve it's always evolving with covid and um so i'm seeing i think you know some confusion among people getting more questions we've definitely had some policy changes here in the states about uh, mask mandates and the such and so it seemed like a good time to do a little update on what's going on for everybody uh, if you are listening to the podcast um, on the show notes page, we will have the uh, video um, where I'll be showing slides and we will also have subtitles there. So, um, so specifically what I want to cover is a little recap of where we are right now with COVID. Um, what has changed and hasn't with COVID over the last year or two? I think that's interesting to think about. I'm going to talk about boosters and vaccines, what the research shows so far, um, what to know about masking now. Uh, I also want to talk about ventilation and checking CO2 levels. Um, and I'll talk about what to do if you catch COVID or even if you've had it very recently. I'll address the question of should you mask on airplanes now that there's no uh, mask mandate on transit right now in the States. And I'll finish with some recommendations. So COVID right now in the United States. Um, so basically, we had a lull in March. They dipped to 29,000 a day about as an average. And now they're going back up. And we're currently, I would say, in the upper um, uh, 60,000s per day, 65,000 or more. Now, it's important to know that this is an underestimate um, because the actual cases are estimated at um, being at least three to four times more. Now, during the big Omicron surge that we had in January, it was estimated that the true number of cases was 10 times more. A lot of people couldn't find tests. Um, and there was just a lot of it going around. But right now, it's estimated that it's at least three to four times more. That's because in many states, um, when people get COVID, they diagnose themselves with rapid tests, and those aren't necessarily reported um, to the state, or there may be some people who don't realize they have it because they get a mild case with just the sniffles and they think they have allergies. Um, and right now at UCSF Hospital, where I'm in San Francisco, they check everybody for COVID who um, they have what they call the asymptomatic people, people who are coming in for surgery, uh, for instance. Um, so there, the rate of people who have COVID and didn't know it has gone from I think during the lull in March, it was like a little over 1%, and now it's at 3.5%, um, which means that in San Francisco, there's about one person in 30 <laughs> who uh, may have COVID and uh, not know it. Um, so we definitely have more COVID going on. And, um, and then we are starting to see hospitalizations go back up again, um, and the deaths are at about 340 per day. So just if we're going to take a, uh, a quick look um, right here. I always recommend, uh, you know, kind of having a place where you can follow the data. So you can see us starting to go back up, um, right now and note that here, when we got low, we were not as low as last, um, summer. 
Um, that was certainly true in San Francisco, and that is true nationwide. Another good spot to get um, data is our world in data, where you can look up different countries. So if we were to look at um, the COVID cases, you can see them coming back up over here. So we're still better than we were last fall. We just haven't gotten nice and low. And what we don't know is how much higher is this going to go? It's also important to know that this reflects the whole country. But what you really want to know is, is it spiking higher where you are uh, or somewhere else in the country? So for instance, uh, we often have spikes that start in one part of the country and then spread to um, the rest of it. So, so right here, we can see that Puerto Rico right now has the highest levels um, and that otherwise also American Samoa, um, but that otherwise the levels are high, especially in the Northeast um, for now. So that raises the question of whether it will come to other parts of the country. Now, um, California, I let's see. California overall is okay. However, um, we right now in the Bay Area have the highest rates of all of California. I'm not even seeing California. There it is, California, 18. Um, but if I were to look in California, right here, um, and look by county, there you go. You can see San Francisco, we are at 40. So we're kind of double the national rate um, right now. And I always recommend keeping an eye on uh, levels in your community. And again, that's an underestimate. And also if I were to look at the wastewater data for uh, the Bay Area, that is also going up. Okay. So the other development is that, uh, as you've probably heard, Omicron has subdivided into more variants. It's been actually quite briskly evolving. So what we had in December, January, February was BA1. Uh, we actually had BA1.1 um, for the most part. Um, but now we have uh, BA2, which was estimated to be about 30% more transmissible than BA1. Uh, and has taken over the United States. And then we have BA 2.12.1, which was first identified in New York State and um, seems to be at least 25% more transmissible than BA 2. Um, now, I believe the way they estimate these transmissibility rates is by looking at the growth of um, the share of that variant. Um, and so if you go to the CDC, Let's see, let's get the variant proportions up here. All right. Okay, so um, this is what we had in the winter, BA1, and then 1.1, um, and then a subvariant, it looks like, of 1.1 uh, right there. And then we can see BA2 coming up and based on the way it grows week over week, I think that's how they estimate the transmissibility compared to others. So we've pretty much driven the old BA 1.1 out of existence. Uh, and then here we can see BA 2.12.1 coming up. So if a variant is growing, when there's another variant present, it means it's more transmissible or otherwise is kind of outcompeting the prior variant. Um, and uh, that's what we're seeing is they're basically getting faster and more contagious for the most part as uh, time goes on. 
Um, and then we also have two other variants called BA4 and BA5 that have been identified in South Africa and actually uh, grew in South Africa, caused a rise in cases and also hospitalizations. I think that's leveling off. It was not nearly as bad a surge as what they had from the original Omicron. Uh, but the question for the rest of us is, is that going to come to our countries? Probably, we're a globalized world, and what will that mean? And we don't really know. Um, what they saw in South Africa is people who had had the original Omicron, BA1, um, were catching BA4. Um, but what we have right now in the States is BA2 and 2.12. And so we'll have to see how well BA4 and BA5 compete against the variants that we have here. Um, so the recent studies uh, do suggest that um, 2.12.1 and then 4 and 5 can reinfect those who had uh, BA1. So, and then before I go into uh, what I think all this means and what we should know about it, um, just to highlight a few recent COVID policy developments. Um, so uh, as you've probably noticed, there was a lot of general relaxing of COVID precautions all spring, uh, especially in those states that had been imposing more precautions before. So a lot of school districts um, uh, ended their mask mandates. Um, the federal government actually was planning to end the mask mandate on transit on May 3rd, but then a federal judge uh, de declared it invalid um, in mid-April. Um, so now we don't have masks required on airplanes and most transit. There are still a few localities that are requiring masks on their own local uh, transit. And I believe the county of Los Angeles is still uh, requiring it. Um, there was also the question of a second booster in part because Israel started experimenting with a um, second booster. So for them, a fourth dose. For most people in the United States, uh, it would potentially be a fourth dose. And that was approved in the United States for age 50 plus at the end of March, in part because experts were anticipating that we would have another surge at some point in the late spring or early um, summer. Um, now, that extra dose um, has been approved in many other countries, but usually for people who are even older than 50. Um, because the data is most compelling for the benefit of that extra booster when the older people get, basically. So um, older than 80 or older than 70. I'm going to talk a little bit about that data in, uh, in a moment, but that's been another thing that has come up, is that some people are getting you know, a second booster or have had it. Um, and then the last uh, policy development I just want to mention um, is um, that the continued funding of pandemic efforts. Um, and even if we say, well, maybe it's not a pandemic anymore for COVID, we still have quite a lot of COVID going around. Um, but funding um, for this has been in question and the administration and Congress have been kind of wrangling about how much to fund and whether uh, they will fund it. And so that matters because that can end up affecting um, you know, coverage of COVID tests and COVID uh, treatments, access to those, and is also important for monitoring. Um, for uh, keeping the research uh, going on whether that's treating acute COVID, long COVID, you know, developing better vaccines. So that's all been in question. So, um, so I, I would say that, you know, many people feel done with COVID. Um, and most people think we need to quote, you know, live with it, um, which is fine. But for me, the question is what should that look like? And especially what should it look like for all of us when cases are going up? 
Um, so that's what I want to talk about in today's uh, update. And I want to specifically address these kinds of frequently asked uh, questions, which you may or may not be asking yourself. So how worried about COVID should we be? And do you need to worry if you've had COVID before or you know, recently this past winter? How much do we need to worry about these new variants? Um, you might be wondering if you need a booster or a second booster. You might be wondering if the vaccines still work, given that we keep having you know, waves and surges and new variants. You might be wondering, are better vaccines coming and when? Uh, I think um, I've also seen a lot of people questioning whether masks work, whether they still work right now, whether they're worth uh, wearing. And now that wearing a mask on the plane has become a personal decision, well, should you bother with wearing a mask on the plane? Um, and then I've also had a few people ask me if rapid tests um, still work and if the tests still work. So those are things that I'm going to cover. Uh, but first, what has changed about COVID in the past year and what has not changed? Um, well, what I would say has changed is that it has evolved to be more transmissible and it's better able to work around antibodies. What this means in practical terms is that it takes less exposure to catch it. It takes less time near somebody who has it. It takes less of a whiff. It's just much easier to catch. And that's because this virus is facing all this pressure, <laughs> evolutionary pressure, um, because new variants have to compete with existing variants. Um, and then also a lot of people now have some uh, immunity to COVID because they've been vaccinated or they've had COVID or both. Um, so uh, the newer variants are easier to catch and they are much more likely to cause infection in people who are vaccinated or had COVID. So a year ago, they were saying breakthroughs are very rare, even in the summer when Delta was causing quite a lot of breakthroughs. And I think now we've all hopefully understood that just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you can't catch COVID or transmit it. Um, COVID's gotten very good at that. Uh, another thing that has changed is that COVID infection is much less likely to cause hospitalizations and deaths than it was before. And this is due to a few things. So first of all, most people do have some immunity because they've been vaccinated, they've had COVID or both. We were also very lucky that Omicron was relatively milder compared to some uh, other variants. Um, now, this is not a given that with time vaccine, the virus will become um, less likely to cause serious uh, illness. We, we just got lucky with that. And, and actually in a place like Hong Kong that had an Omicron surge in a population that had relatively low vaccination rates, and especially their elderly were not very well vaccinated, um, and most people there had not had prior COVID, um, they had quite a lot of deaths. They went from 200 deaths during the whole pandemic at the beginning of February to 9,200 deaths. They had had 13,000 cases. They went to 1.2 million cases. And when I did the math, it basically worked out to like one in every 132 cases resulted in death. Um, so that's less than 1%. At the same time, it was certainly a higher rate than that for um, the elderly. Um, in, uh, in Hong Kong. So that's kind of proof that when people have no antibodies, um, you know, COVID can still be very serious, even the supposedly milder version of uh, Omicron. Um, last but not least, uh, COVID also, I think, causes fewer hospitalizations and deaths because we've gotten better at treating acute COVID. We now have some outpatient treatments to uh, help stave off 
getting hospitalized with COVID. And then once people are in the hospital with COVID, the doctors have learned quite a lot about how to treat them. So they, they can't save everyone. And again, we still have like over 350 people dying every day of uh, COVID. And actually during the whole, certainly during the past year, we've never gone below 200 people a day dying of COVID. So everyone wants to be done with it and be over it, but that's still quite a lot of people dying um, uh, of, uh, of COVID and something I think to be mindful of. So now what has not changed about COVID? So I would say the basic physics of how it's, you know, transmitted and caught have not really changed. It's still mostly airborne. It, you know, gets put into the air when people speak, partly in larger droplets, but especially in small little aerosols. And those aerosols can float in a room if it's not ventilated for hours. They can float well beyond the six feet I think the CDC still has the close contact definition as 15 minutes within six feet. But first of all, if the new variant is very transmittable, it takes way less than 15 minutes. And we know now that those like particles can float um, quite a ways or remain suspended for, for quite a ways. Um, so uh, that has not really changed. Um, there is a question of whether the newer variants are can survive on surfaces for longer than before. Uh, looks like that's true. I still don't know that that's going to become a major route of transmission that you touched something that had COVID on it and then you touched your face, but you know, hand washing is always good. Um, so another thing that has not changed with COVID is that age is still the number one risk factor with every like five to 10 years older you get, especially after age 50, your risk of having more severe COVID as in getting hospitalized or getting quite sick or dying goes up quite a lot. And older adults remain the most likely to experience uh, severe COVID. Vaccination reduces that risk a lot, especially if you're boosted. I'm going to talk about the waning of vaccines in a moment, um, but there's still a, a risk. Another thing that has not really changed about COVID is that we are still seeing long COVID occurring after uh, mild infections in some people. Um, now, I'm not going to talk a ton about long COVID today, but, um, and it also depends on how you define it. It has sometimes been defined as just having symptoms after more than four weeks. I would say there's a subset of people who take more than four weeks to start feeling back to normal. They're still tired easily or, you know, can't exercise the way they, they used to, and it's kind of taking them a long time. And then there are the people who get the sort of post-virus syndrome with headaches, fuzzy feelings, difficulty managing their blood pressure, and, you know, things that can be similar to chronic uh, fatigue syndrome. And that's, of course, uh, much more debilitating, and especially if it, if it lasts. So um, they definitely saw a certain amount of long COVID after Omicron, so we know it's still happening. What percentage of people are going to get it? You know, I see estimates anywhere between, you know, um, I see 5%, 10%, 1%. Um, so I, I think if you get COVID, you're probably not going to get long COVID, but there's a, you know, even if it's 1%, given the millions of people <laughs> who are getting COVID, we still end up with, um, a lot of people with long COVID. Uh, another thing that's not changing about COVID is that it's still mutating and creating newer variants quite quickly. And I would say it's still worse than the flu. I mean, I hear some people say, well, it's become like the flu. Well, no, <laughs> I would say it's still worse than the flu, both for your personal risk, even if you are younger and vaccinated, and for the societal uh, impact. 
Um, so how much should you worry about COVID? I think it depends on a few things. So first of all, it depends on things like um, your age, your vaccine status, and your underlying health conditions um, are what will determine your own personal risk of having severe COVID if you catch COVID. Um, also, how much to worry about COVID um, is how often are you coming in contact with somebody who is vulnerable? Are you caring for a frail older parent? Do you work uh, in nursing homes? Are you or somebody in your household immune suppressed or, you know, being treated for cancer, things like that. And then also how much to worry about COVID um, uh, depends on local transmission rates, right? So when cases are low, and by low, I mean, less than 10 per 100,000 um, population, ideally less than five, that's what I think of as low, we, we got there last summer, we have not really been there since. Um, when cases are low, less worry. And when cases are higher, um, time to think about it more. Uh, I think how much to worry about COVID also depends on whether you're bothered by that risk of long COVID. So again, let's say it's somewhere between one and 10% in vaccinated people. So I often use the ballpark figure of 5%, one in 20. And then um, what we found with the original COVID after it was studied in 2020 is that people, even people who had mild COVID afterwards had notably higher risks of heart attacks, strokes, clots, diabetes, um, cognitive impairment, <laughs> you know, even potentially Alzheimer's. Um, now that was in 2020 before most people were vaccinated. The question is, you know, now if you are vaccinated, do you still have a higher risk of these things after catching even mild COVID? And the answer is we don't, I don't think we know yet. Um, but it's another thing that I think about when there's this question of, do we just ignore COVID uh, or not. So my own take is that catching COVID is kind of like Russian roulette. I mean, you'll probably be okay, but you might not be. <laughs> um, and also that more COVID cases in society means more risk, especially for those who are vulnerable. So again, who are frailer, who are over age 80 or 85, who are immune compromised, who are being treated for cancer. Um, more COVID cases also means more disruptions at work and school, even if people are younger and vaccinated. Um, I have a friend right now, you know, I know many people right now are coming down with COVID. And of course, if you, you know, work in the hospital or as a doctor, now people have to cover your work. And that's just true for lots of workplaces or schools. When teachers are out, that's disruptive. When students are out, that's disruptive. More COVID cases also means more opportunities for the virus to mutate so uh, I believe that there are benefits to us personally and as a society when we reduce COVID transmission. And I don't think it's realistic to have zero COVID, to try to have no COVID cases at all. But I think our goal should be to, um, first of all, each of us personally catch it less often, right? So this is going to be around for the next several years. And I think it's good for people instead of catching it once a year to catch it less often, um, because again, each time you get it is kind of like a round of Russian roulette. Uh, and then it's good for us to have lower transmission levels in society um, for the reasons I mentioned before. So, so I believe that a reasonable approach is, you know, one, to take more precautions when cases are higher or rising. Um, and then two, to reduce COVID transmission, to think about things, what we call in public health, a layered approach. So the idea is there's no silver bullet, but instead you combine different methods and and in particular, what's probably most useful is vaccination, 
ventilation and then personal protective measures, which do include masks, provided you have a good one and wear it correctly. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And then I think we also need to be ready to adjust when cases are going up or are high. I don't think it's going to become necessary again to have full-on lockdowns like we did in 2020, but we could make uh, some adjustments. And of course, if we invest in some fundamentals like better uh, indoor ventilation uh, everywhere, that's going to make all of this much easier. So um, let me now talk about vaccines. Do they still work? You may be wondering. Uh, so the best data right now is still coming from the United Kingdom, which um, uh, provides regular data reports on vaccine effectiveness, and they're quite up to date. They have more up to date uh, data than we get in the US. So this is from their recent report, and they found that for vaccine effectiveness, VE. So again, when we consider the vaccine, we consider, well, how well does it work against symptomatic infection, which is like catching it, transmitting it, feeling sick for a week. Then we have against hospitalization, getting so sick that you have to be hospitalized, and then there's death. Um, so uh, what they found is that really just the two doses, if you just got the original definition of fully vaccinated, which I think is still the current definition in the States, um, two doses stop being effective against symptomatic infections after 25 weeks. So that's, you know, six months, but three doses, you know, got it back up to 60 to 75% against Omicron, but it dropped to almost no effect um, 20 weeks after the, the booster. So five months after the booster. So if you got boosted last fall, um, that booster is probably not doing much in terms of symptomatic infection. So catching COVID, feeling kind of crappy for a few days from COVID. And then there was the vaccine efficacy against hospitalization. Um, so for younger people, 18 to 64, um, getting boosted peaked the efficacy to 82%, but then it dropped to 53% by 15 uh, weeks afterwards. Now, it's important to note that the risk of hospitalization from COVID is overall not very high still in people who are 18 to 64. Um, but um, And then for people who were uh, over 65, getting boosted helped quite a lot. It actually helped more in that group. Um, it got the vaccine efficacy to 92%, but it dropped down to 76% um, um, after 15 weeks. And then um, they found that for vaccine efficacy against death, if you got the original two doses after the 25 weeks, the vaccine uh, protection was 48% uh, uh, efficacy. And for three doses, uh, up to 10 weeks after, the vaccine efficacy was 88. So again, the moral of the story is that a booster helped a lot, and it's especially valuable as people get older or at higher risk because they're the ones... Um, who have the highest you know, risk in the first place of getting hospitalized uh, or dying. Um, but also the efficacy of the booster, especially against symptomatic infection, catching COVID, transmitting COVID uh, wanes um, and was never like super high to begin with for Omicron. So again, if you're thinking, well, can I go to dinner with friends if everybody's vaccinated and boosted? Well, you can go, <laughs> you can just, but you might still catch COVID. Um, from, uh, from that situation, because again, like the, what we saw with Omicron is even people who got boosted were catching COVID. It still helps at a population level, reduce transmission, at least for a few months, um, but it's not full safe. The UK also found that the vaccine efficacy was comparable for BA1 versus BA2. They had 
they developed BA2 there too. So that was very reassuring. It's actually very impressive because these are the vaccines that were developed for the original COVID and they're not working as well with the newer variants, but they still are working. And that's um, just been a really wonderful thing. So the key COVID vaccine takeaways, I would say are that, you know, they work, but the protection wanes, especially after four to five months, especially when it comes to catching or transmitting COVID. Uh, and then it wanes less so, but still, you know, noticeable for hospitalization. A third dose brings at least a temporary improvement in protection. I'm going to talk about the fourth dose in a moment. And it's important to note that most in the United States, most of our winter Omicron deaths were in people who were not vaccinated at all or older adults who did not get boosted. So getting that third dose is important, especially if you have uh, other risk factors. And let me just share right now the, um, the CDC page showing cases and deaths by uh, vaccination status. Um, so let's see it here by age group and the, the deaths. Um, okay, so this right here is unvaccinated people 80 plus. This line is unvaccinated people 65 to 79. And then you have the vaccinated people 80 plus. So here, this was like the kind of peak of the Omicron surge. You know, we still had vaccinated people 80 plus um, uh, who were dying. Um, and um, over here, they show it with uh, the, here they have it broken down by boosters. Um uh, right here. So you can see it right here in the 65, um, group. So this was the difference that the booster made during the Omicron wave. Let's go back to slides. Um, so if you are someone who was vaccinated, but did not get around to getting a booster, I, I would recommend <laughs> Um, the booster, um, the way we did the vaccines, the original series, they were quite close together. They were closer together, the two doses than we normally do for vaccines in part because there was a lot of, you know, um, they wanted to provide some additional protection fairly quickly, but it really looks like three doses is, is a good idea. Which brings up the question of what about the fourth dose, also known as the second uh, booster for those who had mRNA vaccines, which came with two doses originally. So it was studied in Israel. It does appear totally safe. Um, <clears throat> again, I'm not going to talk about vaccine safety, but the vaccines overall have been, have been safe and your risk of harm from COVID side effects, whatever it is, clots, myocarditis, it's always higher with COVID, much higher with COVID than it is with the vaccine. So in Israel, they vaccinated um, a lot of their population that was 60 plus, And the studies showed that there was a reduced relative risk of hospitalization I think 60 to 70%, um, at least in the short term. But there was also an interesting study of health professionals where they gave them, um, randomized them. Some of them got a fourth dose, some of them uh, didn't. And people with the fourth dose still caught COVID. So in, in that group of health workers who had an average age of between 55 and 59, um, 18 to 20% of the people who got a fourth dose caught Omicron compared to 25% of those with three doses. So I think this is a good kind of concrete uh, example. You know, yes, there was a an, an absolute risk reduction of five to seven percent, um, but it 
you know, was not um, fail safe. Um, and so the question is, since so many people with a fourth dose are going to catch Omicron anyway, and then especially as people are younger, their overall risk of hospitalization is pretty, pretty low. Uh, this is the reason why um, a fourth dose was not approved for everyone. Um, and in the United States, they went with 50 plus. In many other countries, they went with uh, even older. So depending on the country, it's 80 or 75 or 70 plus people in nursing homes, uh, plus people at higher risk. Um, so in the States, the FDA said that since so many people as they get older than 50 have high risk conditions, they wanted to make it simple and they just said 50 plus. Um, and we still don't know how long that fourth dose will provide protection. So um, if you got a fourth dose, great. Um, if you are like 55 and wondering if you should get it, you know, if you're not high risk, um, probably going to make a small difference. But the older you get, the more likely it is that that fourth dose is going to provide some meaningful protection for at least a few months. That is really uh, where we're at. So what is next for COVID vaccines? Some people have said, well, what are we supposed to do? Just keep boosting every few months. That's probably not a viable long-term um, solution. Um, and as I'm going to describe, I think along with vaccination, there are other steps we can take to reduce COVID risk and transmission. Um, so they are studying vaccines specific for the variant, the Omicron variant. It's a little tough because the variant keeps evolving. Um, so quickly, the research on how well an Omicron specific one worked was a little bit, um, I think, uh, mixed. Um, so I know the FDA is working on that. The vaccine makers are working on that. And it's not clear to me yet how it's going to pan out. Um, they are also studying a nasal vaccine, which could kind of create more antibodies in the lining of the nose and maybe your throat and actually maybe be more effective at um, preventing infection and transmission, which would slow down um, transmission among the society overall. Um, so that's being studied, probably won't be available later this fall. Um, so uh, most experts expect that there will be some kind of reformulated booster available in the fall. It may or may not be combined with the flu shot and that we might end up with sort of similar to the flu shot, having a kind of yearly um, vaccine against COVID. Um, but all of this is up in the air. Um, what is clear is that it requires funding and investment to study this, to develop this. Um, and that's why it's important that the funding continue and hopefully Congress and the administration will come to uh, an agreement. So um, to wrap up my key points on vaccination, um, vaccines do work. They're just not foolproof. They've almost, you know, um, from the beginning, not been so foolproof at uh, catching it. Um, so uh, I do recommend vaccination and I would say get at least one booster, but just don't expect it to do too much to keep you from catching COVID or keep you from giving it uh, to others. The main benefit is reduced hospitalization and death. And that's especially important as people get older, especially once they're over age 80 or if they are at high risk. Um, now, if you had COVID uh, this past winter, you should know that having COVID is like getting a dose of vaccine. <laughs> so the CDC, I think they didn't want to confuse people, but if you caught Omicron, then you uh, it's not at all clear that a fourth dose is going to benefit you. Catching it, you know, was like the, the fourth dose. Likewise, if you had two vaccines and then had it, 
you could probably consider yourself similar to a boosted person. Although we don't know for sure. We just know that in general, it definitely ups your immunity level. And it's been, um, many experts have said that we should consider having an episode of COVID comparable to getting a dose of a vaccine. Also important to note that the evidence suggests that the best protection comes from combining vaccination and having COVID. So if you had COVID, but have never been vaccinated, I would still recommend being vaccinated. And then we should expect another COVID uh, shot available this fall. So, um, so as I was saying, if you've had COVID before, that's like a dose of the, the vaccine. Um, now we are seeing reinfections in people. So lots of people who had Delta then got Omicron. So it seems especially likely when the variant changes and especially if it's been more than say four months or so since the person had COVID. So if you are one of those people who had Omicron in December or January or even February, I don't think it's, you should assume that you are safe right now or this summer. Now, lots of people are catching COVID now. So if you get it now, you are probably getting BA2 or BA2.12 and you'll probably be okay for the next few months um, unless one of the other variants, BA4 or something appears and starts tearing through and then you know we'll, we'll kind of see. So that would be the approach I would take on that front. But now let's talk about going beyond vaccination. How can we reduce COVID transmission? Uh, so the fundamentals of COVID transmission have not changed. And sometimes I worry that not enough people understand them. So COVID is mainly transmitted when an infected person exhales COVID particles um, and other people inhale these. And people will exhale both larger droplets and they will exhale smaller aerosols so the droplets go about, you know, three to four feet. So the six foot distance is kind of related to that. And then the aerosols can linger in the air a long time. Aerosols also can enter through teeny spaces, you know, including for people's masks. If they don't have a tight seal, the aerosols can enter um, through there. Um, but that's the basic, you know, principle of most COVID uh, transmission. So the risk of COVID transmission basically comes down to how often are you sharing airspace with someone who has COVID? And that is partly going to come down to your local rates, right? When there's lots of COVID in your community, uh, your likelihood of sharing airspace with somebody is higher. And when there are very low rates, then it's um, quite low. Um, and then for that airspace, how ventilated uh, is it? Um, how much time is everyone spending in the airspace? So um, I often shop at my local smaller grocery store. I'm in and out of there in like 10 minutes. Um, that's different than sitting in a space with other people for a work meeting or a meal, you know, for one to two hours. Um, and then uh, the risk of transmission also comes down to is the infected person wearing a mask? And are you? Um, and in a moment, we'll also talk about the quality of that mask and what difference that makes. So again, I want to highlight that COVID on small airborne particles can linger in a poorly ventilated room for quite some time. So you want to think of it as cigarette smoke. I say this because I have talked to older adults who go to restaurants and say, well, we just go when there aren't many people there. I mean, it's good if there are fewer people there. And at the same time, the, you know, um, the workers coming in and out, you know, even if they're not there right now, or you also want to think about spaces like bathrooms 
elevators. <laughs> um, these are these are all spaces, and being more than six feet away is not enough uh, protection. So um, it's important to realize these things. Now let's talk about masking because I've had a lot of people tell me or send me information saying masking doesn't work. Um, so here's the thing. First of all, regarding the research, um, I have looked at the research for some of these things that people send me. And um, it's important to realize that most studies are not of masking itself. They are studies of mask mandates or in one study that was even cited in a local news article by some health providers who were basically saying, we need to stop worrying about masking. They said this study shows it doesn't work. And when I looked at the study, it was in Denmark, the intervention was recommending to people they mask. So it wasn't even imposing a mask mandate or having them wear it. It was just, did you recommend to them that they wore a mask or not? So this is several steps um, away. So I think that's one element to consider when people tell you there's research showing that masks don't work. And then I think it's also important to consider that the type of variant probably matters. I do think that the way the average person wears a mask today is much less likely to be effective than it was 18 months ago. Because again, the COVID um, variants right now are so much more transmissible than before. But the physics and science suggest that masks can reduce transmission because on one hand, they provide source control. So for somebody who has COVID, they will somewhat reduce the particles in the air from that person. How much depends on the quality of the mask for sure and the ventilation in the space. Um, and then they provide some personal protection, which is that if you wear it, ideally it will be reducing how many COVID particles you inhale. And even if it's not perfect, think of it as like, you know, um, walking in the rain, right? <laughs> you could have a small umbrella, you could have a big umbrella, you could be dressed in head to toe Gore-Tex. Um, and it also depends on how hard it's raining and the wind is blowing. And so even if you have a small umbrella, you're, you're sheltering yourself from some of the rain, not all of it. So I think it's also important that we not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, that said, I think with the more transmissible variants, you really need to wear a better mask. And so just this morning, when I went to buy coffee beans at my local coffee shop, the barista had a mask, but it was a cloth mask that I could see had all these gaps along the top of her face. And I just felt like, does she know that's probably not very useful right now? <laughs> right? And I'm not sure that she does. So um, so it's really time to put away the homemade masks from a year and a half ago and even a better, you know, um, reusable cloth mask is I think going to be less protective than it was uh, before. Cause again, it takes just a smaller exposure to catch COVID. So uh, now is really the time to be thinking uh, if you want to protect yourself or if you're trying to reduce yourself as a source. So sometimes when people have COVID to, to not give it to the rest of their family, which has been doable. And I recommend trying it if that happens in your family. Um, you need to wear the best mask possible and N95 are similar and it has to have a good fit and a tight seal around the face. You have to adjust it. So it really kind of sticks to your face, maybe tighten it. Um, that's what helps. Now, um, in my family, we don't love those partly because we don't love that they're disposable and you have to throw them away. Um, so for lower risk situations, we still are often wearing, um, high quality, well-fitted reusable masks. The brands I hear about are happy masks and row. And I think Vogue mask. 
they probably right now are still providing some protection. It's better than nothing, but it's not ideal. And I know that if I really want to keep us protected, we have to get the N95s and really glue them to our faces. Um, so there's a good SIDRAP article. Um, that's the Center for Infectious Disease Research and maybe policy uh, in Minnesota that covers masks and shows kind of a hierarchy of how well they work and why they work. So I will share that in the related links. And then there are some great people to follow on Twitter who know quite a lot about this. Lindsay Marr and Kim Prather are aerosol transmission experts. There's also um, a guy called Mask Nerd who does these very detailed studies of all the different mask uh, versions to see how well they, they are working. Uh, and then there's a good website. I'm blanking on the name. It's like n95project.org that can help you find good masks. Um, so I, I think there's still a role for masking, but you really need to be aware that you need to wear a better mask if you want it to work. And then the other thing is that ideally we would combine masking with ventilation when possible. We don't want to rely only on masking. We also want to think about ventilation. So at my children's school, when it became mask optional, especially when it became mass optional, I started thinking, well, what are they doing about ventilation in the classroom? <laughs> because that's quite relevant. So what should you know about ventilation? Um, good ventilation really makes a big difference in reducing lingering small aerosols that might be carrying COVID. So the way you create this ventilation is you open doors and windows, you use air purifiers such as HEPA filters, or there's a do-it-yourself a filter called a Corsi Rosenthal box, where you buy a box fan from Home Depot, and then these things that are called Merv filters, you put them on like the sides, and you can make your own um, a HEPA quality uh, air filter, um, and then being outside. So how do you know if you are ventilating enough? So the way you know is you um, assess with a, um, a CO2 monitor. Um, so you can buy right now for $250 on Amazon, a carbon dioxide uh, monitor that will show you the level in the, in the um, near you. So normal is around 450. This is what we have on the atmosphere. And as people are indoors and it will go up, even if it's just you <laughs> in a space, it goes higher and higher. So the CDC recommends a level of less than 800 parts per million. Um, and what is interesting is that in Japan, um, it has been the norm for quite some time to post CO2 levels in public spaces. So let me show you um, what uh, these monitors look like. Um, okay, so um, here's an example in Japan where they post it in the malls, they post it outside theaters. They want people to feel reassured that the space is being ventilated. And then um, I'm going to talk about planes in a moment. This is a very good article by uh, Caitlin um, Gelatina. I'm not sure how she says her name, who is an epidemiologist and runs a Substack, your local epidemiologist, and um, which is great for information about the planes. And let me just see. Okay. Let's see if we can see the pictures. So this is Aeronet 4. Um, this is a portable CO2 monitor that you can get for $250, um, which is not nothing. But um, you know, schools could potentially have a few of these and check their indoor spaces. Um, these are people actually on the planes showing you know, the level outside. 
non-crowded terminal, and then the flight. We're going to talk about the flight, but basically the level goes up quite a lot during boarding and when the plane is not in motion, because even though all these people have been saying planes have such great ventilation, it's only when the plane is in flight. Um, so this is another option um, for, um, for knowing whether your ventilation is adequate. And I think we are underusing this right now in the United States, and we could um, push for sort of uh, what's called sometimes a safe indoor air movement to make sure that workspaces, schools, public areas are adequately uh, ventilated, and that would make a big difference. So until we have this as kind of a public effort, um, what you can do to create your own safe air is, you know, again, be mindful that outside is always better than indoors. You want to open doors and windows when possible. You could consider getting one of those CO2 monitors to check indoor spaces, um, especially if your CO2 level is often above 800. You could get a HEPA air purifier or a do-it-yourself Corsi Rosenthal box, and I'll post a link to instructions for that to remove COVID from the air. And again, all of this is most important when case levels are not low, like right now, <laughs> um, because right now they are way above um, five to 10 uh, per 100,000 per, per day. Um, now, airplanes. So again, as I was saying, um, airplanes do have good air filtration, but that's when they are flying. So the ventilation during boarding and when on the runway is not so good. Many people have documented on Twitter um, that their CO2 monitor shows a level above 3,000 parts per million um, before the plane is like really in motion. Um, also, even once the plane is in motion and cruising and the CO2 concentration has gone down, you are going to be exposed to um, droplets from people who are sitting close to you. So if the person sitting next to you or in front of you, possibly behind you, uh, has COVID, you would get exposed, especially if you're not wearing a mask or taking other steps to reduce your inhaling what is um, around you. So unless cases are low for right now, I would recommend of wearing a good mask while boarding. And then eating a little in flight is probably okay um, unless someone close to you has COVID. So again, what are the rates kind of in your city and where you are? And if they're high, then I would be careful about taking the mask off on the plane. And I will put a link to the local, um, your local epidemiologist uh, um, article because it's very good about plane ventilation. And she also reviews some of the case studies and contract tracing when they found that people who were on planes did catch COVID from another uh, passenger. So how safe are indoor activities right now? Um, well, most locations in the United States currently do not have low COVID levels and BA 2.12.1, which is the one that's taking off right now, appears to be extremely contagious. Um, so most indoor activities, I would say, are not going to be very safe, especially if um, the space is not well ventilated, especially if you're going to be inside with other people for you know more than a short period of time especially if people are talking, shouting, or singing. So, you know, a movie theater where people stay quiet and don't talk is better than, you know, a bar. Um, and, um, and it's especially less safe indoors if most people indoors are unmasked, such as, you know, indoor dining. So um, I think now is a good time to be cautious about indoor dining. Um, also, remember that cars and public transit should be considered... Um, excuse me, uh, cars in transit should be considered indoors as well. So now testing and COVID today. Um, 
do tests still work? Uh, the answer is yes. The rapid tests do detect so far all the variants of COVID. What we are seeing, though, is that they may not turn positive during the first few days. Um, it seems that especially with Omicron, it tends to build up in the saliva before it does in the nasal lining. And some research has suggested that people can be infectious um, because the levels of saliva in the day or two before the nose test turns positive seem to be high enough to be uh, infectious. Um, this raised the question of should you swab the throat also or the cheek? Uh, they did a study at UCSF on this, which um, was not considered persuasive for that argument. Uh, you definitely should not swab only the throat instead of the nose. Um, you could possibly do both. It's not recommended because they weren't FDA approved for that or emergency approved for that. I forget what kind of approval they have. Um, so I think the main thing to be mindful of is that if you had an exposure or are feeling a little bit unwell and your rapid test is negative, you want to give it another day or two and probably be careful until you can confirm. And it should definitely turn positive if it's going to turn positive within, I would say, three days. So this means that the method that we were using before to do a rapid test for COVID before a gathering, um, I think it's still useful, but it's not foolproof. And it's probably a little less useful than um, it was during the kind of Delta era. You also, if you are going to do a test before gathering, you need to do it as close to the gathering as possible. So like ideally an hour before. Um, so one of my children's schools, when they came back from spring break, said you have to take a rapid test the morning of before you come to school, which I thought made sense. And the other school said you have to take it the day before, anytime the day before. And I thought, well, that doesn't really, that's not as good. Um, so the closer to it, the better. Um, and then of course, safest is to have people do rapid tests and then ventilate, right? <laughs> um, as I've been saying. Um, okay. And then there's also still the PCR tests, right? Um, so again, the rapid test tests for viral protein um, and the PCR test is uh, more sensitive and tests for um, pieces of the viral um, RNA and can amplify it so it can find very small amounts. Um, so it'll essentially pick up smaller amounts of virus and the PCR test will be positive sooner and it will stay positive for much longer. It can stay positive for weeks. That does not mean you're contagious. So a positive rapid test is still considered a good way to determine whether someone is contagious at the end of their COVID course. I think the current like recommendations are that you can exit isolation at five days, but we know from having looked at rapid tests for many people at the five-day mark that many people are still positive and remain positive on rapid tests for seven to 14 days. And the experts that I trust believe that that signals they still have enough um, COVID uh, proteins that they are probably still infectious. So I recommend if you have COVID and are testing positive that you isolate, or if you have to be near people, wear a very, very good mask and ventilate um, until you are testing negative on the rapid test. Now, what about outpatient treatment options if you catch COVID? Um, so all older adults and people at high risk should ask about Paxlovid. It's the antiviral um, treatment. And then also they should ask about monoclonal antibody treatments. Now, we have several monoclonal antibody treatments. And basically with every new variant, they'll find that the monoclonals will, um, some of them will work against it, but many will not. Um, so it's important to find out, um, well, it's important to bear in mind that the monoclonal 
that worked for some people before may not work for whatever is the current uh, variant. Your doctors should be able to know if the monoclonals currently available are likely to work against the variants that is circulating at the time. And then in terms of Paxlovid, uh, I want to say a few caveats. I do think it's a good idea for people who are at quite high risk. So much older, immune compromised, chronic conditions, cancer, whatever. Um, and um, what has been found so far is that uh, families find that they often have to do a lot of advocating to get Paxlovid. They'll be told that their loved one isn't eligible or that the doctor can't prescribe it. And so it often takes a little elbow grease. Um, and uh, we are also seeing that some people take Paxlovid and they get better. They feel better. Their rapid test turns negative. And then a few days later, they start feeling symptoms again and their rapid test is positive. So they, they are noticing a phenomenon of a kind of relapse or rebound in some people. It's being studied. Um, I think right now the recommendation generally is that the person should resume taking Paxlovid. There's a question of whether people should maybe take a longer course. So this is all kind of being studied. So if you are somebody higher risk and you get Paxlovid and you get better, but then after the five days, after you've stopped it a few days later, you feel worse, you turn positive, um, you should take that seriously and let your doctors know. Um, but the take home for me too, is that I know a lot of people who have caught COVID who are not particularly high risk have asked for Paxlovid. And I'm not sure that's a great idea. <laughs> you know, um, It was studied in people who are high risk and unvaccinated. So we really don't know what the benefit is in people who are not high risk and are vaccinated. Um, if you're vaccinated, especially if you're not older, you, you know, your risk of hospitalization from COVID is quite low. It's not at all clear that taking Paxlovid reduces your risk of long COVID. Paxlovid was tested to see if it would prevent COVID in people who were exposed. You know, like if you give it to the household contact, do they not get COVID? It didn't work for that. Um, so I think if you're older and high risk and you get COVID, yes, you should ask for Paxlovid. And if you're not that, I'm not sure it's a good idea to ask for it because there's still a lot we're learning about this, uh, this medication. Lastly, for those who are immunocompromised, it's important to know that there is a preventive treatment available for people who are immunocompromised. It's a special antibody treatment called Evusheld. It's a combination um, of, um, of antibodies, and it has an emergency approval for people who are unlikely to respond to vaccination. So people who uh, have had transplants or on serious immunosuppressive drugs or people who, especially people who have blood cancers or medical conditions related to the function of their white blood cells, uh, they often do not respond to vaccination. And the initial study showed a significant reduction in symptomatic COVID and severe COVID in people who got it. And it's expected to last for a few months. Preliminary studies. So the question is, will it work against the new variants? The preliminary studies showed that it did work against the first versions of Omicron. And so we're going to cross our fingers for the upcoming and current versions of Omicron. So to wrap this up, um, if you want to be safer from COVID, um, and again, I think it's worth taking some steps, right? I don't think we have to live our life chained to zero COVID, but I think especially when cases are going up, it's reasonable to take some precautions. And now is a good time because cases are going up. So I recommend, again, monitoring COVID rates in your area, 
uh, wastewater, if available, your local COVID dashboard. You know, I look at the one for San Francisco often. Uh, pay attention to people around you getting it. I mean, when you keep hearing that people you know caught it, that's a wake-up call, <laughs> right? So lots of kids during March got it at my daughter's school. And I was like, wow, this like this is not over. Um, I'm still not going to do indoor dining. That was, you know, my my approach. Um, and remember that the official count is a vast underestimate. Um, I recommend being vaccinated and staying up to date. Right now, what's recommended is especially the third booster for everyone, and then the fourth for people who are older and at high risk. And then remember that you know the fundamentals of COVID airborne transmission. I don't think are going to change anytime soon. So your risk of catching it corresponds to your exposure to the exhalations of others and the chance that they already have it. So we can reduce risk by ventilating indoor spaces, checking CO2 levels when possible, avoiding crowds, using the best mask we can when indoors with others, avoiding unmasked indoor activities and wearing a mask on the plane, especially when boarding. And I think all of these other than ventilation, um, ventilation, we could probably do year round no matter what. Um, but the, the, the others are especially important when cases are not low, like uh, right now. So the long-term plan to live with COVID, um, I would encourage you to support safer indoor air. You can start with your workplace, your schools, and the more we can make it, you know, um, kind of uh, foundational for everyone, right? We all expect to have access to clean water. We should expect to have access to clean indoor air. That's going to help. Um, support continued funding for COVID uh, monitoring, prevention, treatment, and research that should come at the federal level. And then also the states will probably pitch in and support the development of the next generation of COVID vaccines and uh, treatments, because it would be great to get to a point where we didn't have hundreds of people dying every day of COVID. And remember that those people dying are disproportionately older or have health vulnerabilities. So here's hoping the current wave loses steam soon. I I recommend taking precautions until they peak and then come down, preferably way down. <laughs> Please support planning for future surges. We're going to hope for the best and plan for what's you know possible and likely. So thank you for watching this update. Stay safe. Have a wonderful rest of May and summer. Take care. And I will be back with another update when there are major developments. So take care, everybody. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.